the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we're looking forward to a conversation with uh, Dr. Mark David Hall. His latest book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. Uh, very much looking forward to that conversation. We'll also talk about the origins of this book, which started with a lecture. We'll get into all of that. Also in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with two of the directors from the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, Wes Walterman and Paul Willie. Next weekend, not this, but next weekend is the opening of the Singing Christmas Tree. I believe it's the 57th season. You want to make sure you have all the important details. As I mentioned earlier this week, as a soloist, I attended the first rehearsal on Monday night and oh, the choir blew me away. We'll talk more about that when they join us. Also, we'll talk with Major Robert Lloyd. He is uh, with the Salvation Army. Their Red Kettle campaign is about to begin. And you may not realize, but that campaign funds much of the work, most of the work that the Salvation Army does, not only here in our community, and they're doing significant work here, but all across the country. We'll talk with uh, Major Rob about that, Major Bob, when he joins me uh, later in the program. So I hope you can stick around for all of that. First, to look at some of the data headlines. All eyes were on uh, moderate House Democrats in swing districts on Wednesday night after the first day of public hearings and the impeachment inquiry against President Trump wrapped up with no major revelations, but also highlighted weaknesses in the key witnesses who relied primarily on secondhand information and never once interacted with the president. Now, critics may urge that Democrats first witness failed to directly prove that uh, Trump and his July 25th phone call tried to pressure Ukrainian President Zelensky into investigating Joe Biden's family. Family business, uh, or their dealings anyway, there in the country in exchange for the release of about $400 million in military aid. That might make more moderate Democrats hesitate uh, to impeach the president, but again, that remains to be seen. The House is now composed of 431 members, meaning Democrats uh, need 217 yeas to impeach the president. I, I don't think there's any doubt that he will be impeached. There are currently 233 Democrats, so they uh, can't lose more than 16 votes and still impeach the president. The key potential complication is this. 31 House Democrats represent more moderate districts that Trump carried in 2016. Still, the first day of testimony offered one pre Previously undisclosed allegation, career diplomat William Taylor, the charged affairs in uh, Kiev, asserted that the president was overheard by a member of his staff on the 26th of July asking EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland about the investigations. Sondland supposedly responded that the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. Taylor said that following Sondland's call with Trump, the member of his staff asked what Trump thought about Ukraine. But Republicans pointed out that Taylor's testimony was unverifiable hearsay, several lawyers did and that Sondland had previously testified that Trump explicitly told him there were no quid pro quos of any kind with Ukraine. Earlier today, a second individual said they too overheard that call. Well, not even CNN seemed persuaded. CNN analyst Jeffrey Tubin, a former federal prosecutor, noted that Democrats had a problem in that 
Their key witnesses on Wednesday had never directly interacted with the president. Another key witness for Democrats on Wednesday, George Kent, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the State um, for Europe, appeared to give testimony that supported Trump's concern about Biden's family dealings in Ukraine. Well, Kent testified that he would love to see Ukraine look into the circumstances surrounding the closure of a probe tried to the natural gas firm Burisma Holdings, while also raising concerns that Hunter Biden's role on the board of that firm created the appearance of a conflict of interest. Well, Trump, for his part, said that he was too busy to watch Wednesday's hearing. At a news conference with Turkish President uh, Erdogan, Trump called Democrats' efforts a hopeless witch hunt and vowed to release another transcript of an earlier call with Ukraine on Thursday which would be today. Public testimony in the Trump impeachment inquiry hearing is set to resume tomorrow with Marie Yovanovitch, a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. The Islamic Jihad militant group early Thursday announced it had reached a ceasefire with Israel. The deal, brokered by Egyptian mediaries, took effect at 5.30 a.m. local time, Islamic Jihad spokesperson Musad al-Birim said. The reported truce followed two days of violence that left at least 32 Palestinians dead, according to the Associated Press. Barham said the ceasefire came after his group submitted a list of demands late Wednesday, including a halt to Israeli target killing, targeted killings of the group's leaders and an easing of Israel's 12-year blockade of Gaza. Garth Brooks took home top honors at Wednesday's CMAs, the Country Music Awards in Nashville, and a star-studded award ceremony that included country music's most famous acts and a stirring tribute to women artists performed by Dolly Parton, Carrie Underwood, and Reba McIntyre. With a history-making opening that paid tribute to women in country music, the ladies started the CMAs by singing a Parton's Those Memories of You before Little um, Big Town joined Parton on stage to pay tribute to 87-year-old country music icon Loretta Lynn who was also in attendance. The dose of girl power continued with Tanya Tucker, who also took to the stage to perform Delta Don. Gretchen Wilson uh, was also on hand to perform her rowdy um, redneck women, Crystal Gale and High Women, Sarah Evans and more, later joined before the group concluded with Martina McBride's Independent Day. And heat but no light. The first public impeachment hearing was... um, by some accounts, less than satisfying. NBCnews.com is swooning over a drag queen at the circus hearing who showed up uh, ready to attend. And U.S. Appeals Court has again backed the House in their request for uh, Trump tax documents. Ex-Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick has announced his uh, hat is in the ring for the presidential uh, bid to uh, represent his party. And the federal government can't just allow 3D gun-making software to proliferate without a license, according to a federal judge. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders pitch Green New Deal bill for public housing. And in China, their holdings... Uh, in-depth talks with the United States on interim trade deal uh, details. The president's administration proposes employment restrictions for asylum seekers who enter the U.S. illegally and more than 600 children recycled by migrant smugglers at the border. In other words, they were brought in as if they were their own, uh, deported and brought back in as if they were someone else's own. And the FBI's lone wolf says uh, domestic terrorists are rarely isolated. Hmm. Well, on this day in history, 1965, the U.S. Army's first major military operation of the Vietnam War begins with the start of a five-day battle in La Drang. On this day in 1969, Apollo 12 blasts off for the moon. On this day in history, 1970, a chartered Southern Airways DC-9 crashes while trying to land in West Virginia, killing all 75 people on board, including the Marshall University football team and its coaching staff. 
On this day in history, 1972, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closes above the 1,000 level for the first time, ending the day at 1,003.16. And on this day in 2008, Dr. Adrian Krantrovich... Kantrowitz, I think is more accurate. The cardiac surgeon who performed the first U.S. heart transplant in 1967 dies in Ann Arbor, Michigan at age 90. On this day in history, 2017, three UCLA basketball players who were detained in China on suspicion of shoplifting return home and are indefinitely suspended from the team. And finally, on this day in 2017, also, House Speaker Paul Ryan says the House would require anti-harassment and anti-discrimination training for all members and their staffs. The announcement comes hours after two female lawmakers speak about sexual misconduct involving sitting members of Congress. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 15 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res and Liberty Coin and Currency. Coming up for our next two segments, we'll talk with uh, Professor Mark David Hall. His latest book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. That's coming up in our next two segments of today's program. Well, the female student was dead and several other students were injured Thursday when a 15-year-old suspect who's now in custody opened fire at Saugus High School in California. The 16-year-old and a 14-year-old boy, both dead. Three other teens were injured. A 16-year-old suspect uh, was transported to the hospital and is in grave condition. He opened fire at Saugus High School in California. The suspect is in custody, being treated, according to the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office. Six people, all students, had gunshot wounds when police arrived at the scene at about 7.40 a.m. Los Angeles County Sheriff's Captain Kent Wegener said uh, this afternoon during a news conference. It was later discovered that one of the victims was the suspect, an Asian student at the school whose 16th birthday is today. The victims were a 16-year-old girl who passed away at 9.23 a.m. this morning, a 14-year-old girl, a 15-year-old girl, and two 14-year-old boys, according to officials. One of the 14-year-old victims died at the hospital. Um, Villanova said at the press conference, noting that it was not uh, the shooter. There were also non-critically injured victims who were transported to a hospital for a total of seven, including the suspect uh, investigators reported. The weapon was a 45 semi-automatic pistol that had no remaining bullets that was recovered at the scene. Detectives have viewed video that clearly shows the suspect withdraw a handgun and found and wound rather five people and shoot himself in the head. The suspect's mother and girlfriend were at a police state at the police station and a search warrant was being uh, uh, written uh, that and conducted at the suspect's home for further evidence. No motive was immediately known. An investigation has begun to determine what happened and why, according to officials. Well, police said that they were in the process of interviewing students who were witnesses and looking into reports of video being posted on social media, but Wegener called those reports rumors. The shooter had been described as a male, a suspect wearing black clothing, who was last seen walking away from the scene, according to the sheriff's deputy. Henry Mayo, a hospital said it received four patients from the incident, a female and two males in critical condition, one male in good condition, according to the hospital. Two uh, victims were taken to another hospital, saying it was a pretty sobering incident for those involved, uh, obviously, including first responders. He said during the press conference, noting that the first responder community had children who attended that high school. Santa Clarita uh, Mayor Marsha McLean said her granddaughter attended the high school and that even though the city is the third largest in Los Angeles County, we are a close-knit, family-oriented 
bonded community and our family sticks together. The feeling that uh, went over me was indescribable, she said, of the moment she heard of the news. I felt the same thing as our families. I want every single family member to know we are with you, our hearts are with you, and that all I can say is um, this is a horrible thing. There are no words to describe it. Well, that certainly was how many felt about the events that had taken place early that morning. President Trump offered his condolences on Twitter, adding that he was uh, uh, monitoring the situation with law enforcement. Uh, We send our deepest condolences to the families and friends of those tragically lost, and we pray for the speedy recovery of the wounded. Vice President Pence addressed the shooting at the beginning of his remarks at a NASA event a Thursday afternoon. It's another heartbreaking day for students and parents in America, he said. In this nation, we mourn with those who mourn. We grieve with those who grieve. To the families and to those critically injured on behalf of the American people, I say from my heart, the hearts of every American are with you today. Our prayers are with you, and our prayers are with all the doctors, nurses, and hospital staff that are treating your loved ones. He spoke with President Trump, who also conveyed his uh, sympathies to the families of the victims and the entire Santa Clarita community. Uh, The vice president said, adding that the president directed the full resources of the federal government to support local law enforcement. Uh, The vice president continued, let me say, on behalf of the president who Uh, We uh, commend the high response of local law enforcement and the uh, school officials. Uh, They undoubtedly saved lives. He added to every American, we say this president and this administration will remain resolved to bring the scourge of mass shootings to an end. And we will not rest or relent until uh, we end this evil in our time and make our schools and our communities safe again. Uh, the Williams S. Hart Union High School District said that all school lockdowns were lifted as of 140 Uh, p.m. That was Eastern time, even though the schools are in the Pacific time zone. It wasn't immediately clear if the shooting rather occurred inside the school building on school grounds or near the school. It also wasn't clear what time the shooting happened, but a lieutenant with the fire department said that it began at about 6.55 a.m. Deputies on scene and, uh, and still responding said that the area should be avoided. The president is monitoring the ongoing situation. And once again, we mourn the loss of Uh, Up at this point, two young people, a 14 and 15 year old shot at their school. Well, with relations between Washington and Ankara historically strained, President Trump on Wednesday held a high stakes meeting with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan just weeks after the latter ordered a controversial invasion of the northern part of Syria following the withdrawal of U.S. troops. Uh, from that region. The two leaders were expected to discuss Turkey's decision to purchase a Russian-made air defense system, even though Turkey is a member of NATO and hosts a U.S. military base, (coughs) excuse me, as well as the country's military actions against Kurds in the northern part of the country, which have drawn widespread bipartisan condemnation in Congress and elsewhere. The Turkish offensive followed the president's announcement last month that he intended to pull U.S. troops out of the country, a move that critics have said left Syrian Kurds, long allies of the United States, vulnerable to slaughter by Turkish forces. The president, meanwhile, argued last month that actions by Turkey, uh, Turkey rather, in Syria were not our problem and that the Kurds were not the angels that their defenders made them out to be. We are not a policing agent. He went on to say it is time for us to go home. 
Well, the meeting of the two world leaders has drawn criticism from both Republicans and Democratic leaders uh, who earlier this week called on the president to cancel his encounter with Erdogan. Senator Mario, uh, rather Marco Rubio, has been one of the most vocal critics from uh, the president's own party when it comes to relations between the U.S. and Turkey. Nations all over the world, including Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Egypt, watch very closely. He wrote to other wrote of rather other U.S. allies in the region, tweeting if sanctions are waived, they will uh, conclude they can get away with buying weapons from uh, Russia or allowing China's military bases. Last month, the House overwhelmingly passed a bill to sanction senior Turkish officials and its army for the military incursions into Syria to fight the Kurds. Erdogan sees Kurdish forces in Syria as an extension of a separatist Kurdish group that's been fighting inside Turkey since the 80s. This is not the time or place to be extending hospitality and exchanging niceties with a dictator, said Senator Gene Shaheen, a New Hampshire um, Democrat who sits on the Foreign Relations and Armed Services Committees. In the Senate, two Democrats introduced legislation denouncing Turkey's targeting of journalists, political opponents, dissidents, minorities, and others. They said the Turkish government had Im- uh, imprisoned more than 80,000 Turkish citizens, closed more than 1,500 non-governmental organizations on terrorist-related grounds and dismissed or suspended more than 130,000 civil servants from their jobs. Uh, The president of the United States has defended his relationship with Erdogan as critical to regional security in the Middle East and added Turkey has been a key U.S. ally for decades, citing the economic upside to the relationship as a reason to overcome those differences. The administration officials have said the president told Turkey not to invade Syria, but when Erdogan insisted, they say Trump decided to move 28 Green Berets operating in the Turkey-Syrian border so they wouldn't be caught up in the crossfire between Turkey-backed forces and the Kurds. A State Department official said the president is not rewarding Erdogan with a White House visit, but is conducting diplomacy. The official said high-level consultations are needed because of the volatile situation there that has displaced tens of thousands of people. Besides the invasion of Syria, there is also concern surrounding Erdogan's presence in Washington following his last trip to the U.S. Capitol in May of 2017 when members of his security detail were accused of assaulting American demonstrators outside the Turkish embassy in Washington. New protesters were expected uh, for this visit in Lafayette Park across from the White House. The leaders scheduled afternoon news conference followed uh, following a meeting with Republican lawmakers at the White House also gave Trump the stage to counter the first public hearings and the White in the House rather impeachment inquiry. He took full advantage of that. Meanwhile, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham ripped into the Turkish president during a tense Oval Office meeting on Wednesday over the country's invasion of Syria. According to sources, Graham told Erdogan, you have done something no one thought was possible. You have united the United States against Turkey. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Mark David Hall. His latest book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Is there a link between Christian faith and American liberty? Well, in Did America Have a Christian Founding? My next guest offers a carefully researched, skillfully nuanced account of Christianity's influence on America's founders. Uh, In 2010, nationally recognized expert on religious freedom, Mark David Hall, gave a lecture at the Heritage Foundation. It was entitled, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Well, his lecture caused quite a sensation. 
C-SPAN televised his talk, and an essay based on it was uh, downloaded more than 300,000 times. Well, in his new book, Dr. Hall, he expands upon this essay, making the airtight case that America's founders were not deists, that they did not create a godless constitution, that even Jefferson and Madison did not want a high wall separating church and state, that most founders believed the government should encourage Christianity, and that they embraced a robust understanding of religious liberty for biblical and theological regions, reasons rather. In addition, he explains why and how the founders viewed views rather are relevant today. Written in a clear and engaging style, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating modern myth from historical truth will convince skeptics and equip believers and conservatives to defend the idea that Christian thought was crucial to the nation's founding and that this is good news for all Americans. Well, Dr. Mark David Hall has been at George Fox University since 2001. He received a BA in political science from Wheaton College and a PhD in government from the University of Virginia. In addition to teaching politics and honors, he is the director of the John Dickinson Forum for the Study of America's Founding Principles. His uh, primary research and writing interests are American political theory and the relationship between religion and politics. In addition to having written and edited 12 books, he's also penned more than 100 journal articles, book chapters, reviews, and sundry pieces. In addition to teaching at Fox University, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Mark is associated uh, associated faculty at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University, senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, and an affiliate scholar at the John Jay Institute. How on earth he has time to talk with us today, I could not tell you, but I am delighted to have uh, Dr. Mark David Hall with us here this afternoon. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Joe Jean. Well, let's begin by, um, as you do in the book, in the introduction, you write, scholars and popular authors routinely assert that America's founders were deists who desired the strict separation of church and state. Let's begin with the question, why is it important in the 21st century for us to explore this question and to understand it in its historic context? Yeah, that's a great question. I think to begin with, it's important just to have history right. We want an accurate account of history for its own sake. As well, I I think James Wilson pointed out as a Supreme Court justice in the 1790s that good regimes sort of naturally pull people back to the first principles upon which the regimes were founded. So I think it's important to um, reflect on these principles and to try to remain faithful to this wonderful constitutional order that was bequeathed to us. As well, the U.S. Supreme Court has made it crystal clear that we must interpret, we, the U.S. Supreme Court justices, must interpret the the First Amendment in light of its generating history. And so the answer to these questions has very Mm -hmm. important implications for law and public policy. I mentioned uh, in the introduction that you gave a lecture at the Heritage Foundation that caused quite a controversy, a, a sensation, because the notion that America had a Christian founding, and we'll define what that means in just a moment, has become uh, controversial. Why is this question controversial today, and when did that controversy, if you will, begin? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it began in the 19th century where some um, authors, not too many, but some started questioning the commitment of America's founders to Christian orthodoxy. And then uh, probably more prevalent in the 19th century, a number of popular authors asserted maybe a little bit too strongly that, no, 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 all of the founders were wonderful, pious Christian men. The debate really took off in the 20th century where the academy, um, that is universities and colleges, really became populated by progressive secularists. And I think if they look back to the American founding, um, they were looking for a usable past and they wanted to sort of 
help free America from its past ties to religion, and they, they wanted a wall of separation uh, between church and state. And so my main concern in this book, I, I begin each chapter with you know, maybe 20 quotations of scholars, important scholars, in peer-reviewed uh, books saying things like, most of America's founders were deists, or America's founders wanted a wall of separation between church and state. So this is a very pervasive set of myths. And I'd like to think in the five chapters or so of the book that I utterly demolish these myths and then argue affirmatively that Christianity had a very important impact on America's founders. Well, let's begin with the subject you cover in the first chapter. I don't want to assume that all of our listeners understand what it means when it has said that the founders were deists and why that is contrary to a Christian um, uh, foundation of this uh, constitutional republic. Can you explain what that means and why it, first of all, is wrong, but why it's troubling? Sure. So theism is a movement that comes about with the Enlightenment. And basically, it's a rationalist approach to religion. So deists tend to reject things that they feel and doesn't square with reason. So things such as um, the Trinity or the Incarnation or the Atonement or the Virgin Birth, these things aren't reasonable in the light of the deists. And so they reject them. Now, they're, they're, they're willing to agree that reason teaches us that there's some sort of creator God. But this God, it is oftentimes held, just simply created the world and then steps away from it. So God does not intervene in the affairs of men and nations. And what's utterly uh, astonishing in my mind is you have prominent scholar after prominent scholar including a number of Christian college professors writing things like most of America's founders were deist. And what I do in that chapter is I go through the sort of evidence they present to make their case. I carefully define deism. And by the end of the chapter, I, I argue that maybe there's three deists among America's civic founders in, in that era. And three, not many. And you, you can make a good case that we should count maybe 800 or so men and a few women as founders. And yet we have clear evidence that one, two, or maybe three of them are theists. So it's just astonishing that people routinely make these unsupportable claims. Is it, be, is it bad scholarship, or is it a convenient way of redefining what the original intent um, was? Yeah, I think it's, it's a combination. I think it's bad scholarship. I think it's um, sometimes a willful neglect of evidence. To give one example, George Washington is always listed in these studies as being a deist. And yet George Washington references providence more than 270 times in his writings and private letters and public documents. He very specifically talks about times in which God um, specifically intervened to save him personally, to save the American army, to save the nation. Um, now, you might say some of these things might be rhetorical first, but again, he's doing this all the time throughout his entire career, including in private letters. And so it's just astonishing that people continue to label uh, Washington as a deist, even someone like a Thomas Jefferson, who is more accurately labeled as such. But even Jefferson, upon occasion, talks about um, in the notes on the state of Virginia, when he fears, when he trembles, when he recalls that God is just. And this is in the context of slavery, with the idea that God will come and punish um, Americans for, for permitting this vile institution of slavery. And, um, you know, this is not the sort of thing a deist God does. And so, you know, Jefferson, you know, we know for sure he is not an Orthodox Christian. He clearly denies some basic tenets of Orthodox Christianity. But that's not the same thing as being a deist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, before we move forward, let me ask you, I think, a, a, an important question. And that's what's con- what constitutes America's founding? Because there seems to be some disagreement even on that point. 
Sure. So I, I lay out three possibilities. One would be America's earliest colonial settlement. That is the first settlement in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. And if that's what we mean by founding, then I think indisputably um, we had a Christian founding. Pure to New England, almost no one would argue with me about that. So I focus more on the mid-Atlantic colonies such as Pennsylvania and the southern colonies such as Virginia. And I make it clear that even in these colonies, people were profoundly concerned with the things of God. Another possibility would be the War for American Independence. One could argue that these early colonies were a part of the British Empire, after all. And it's only with independence that these colonies break from Great Britain and become independent. And so I spent some time exploring that, and I, I contend that America's war for independence was both, was both biblical and just. But one could argue that the only thing that resulted from that war was 13 independent states. And so another argument would be really America came into being. America was founded with the U.S. Constitution. And so I spent some time here. Now, the argument of the other side, of course, is that God isn't really referenced in the Constitution, not to get to the date line in the year of our Lord, 1787. But I wouldn't want to put too much weight on that. What I argue instead is that we can point to a number of very specific ways in which America's founders were profoundly influenced by Christian ideas. And so therefore, even God, even though God isn't referenced much in the Constitution, I think it's fair to say that even if we look to the creation of our constitutional order, that America still had a Christian founding because of this Christian influence. We're talking with Dr. Mark David Hall, author of Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. We'll continue that conversation in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. We're talking with uh, Dr. Mark David Hall, a professor from George Fox University and much more. His latest book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth, in which in five short chapters that are very approachable to the average reader, he addresses questions like the myth of the founders' uh, deism, the United States does not have a godless constitution. Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and the First Amendment, the founders believed civic authorities should protect, promote, and encourage religion and morality. And in his final chapter, Christianity, Religious Liberty, and Religious Exemptions. Now, Dr. Hall, let me ask you about um, our government. It is considered secular, but that is not the same as godless. Now, you devote a chapter to that subject. What does it mean um, that the uh, founders respected religion, uh, they established a secular government, government, but the Constitution is not godless. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure I like the la- label of a secular government. I, I think the founders clearly um, saw the church and the state as separate institutions, a document that could be, or an argument that could be traced back to the words of Jesus, right? Given to Caesar mm-hmm. what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. They were clearly influenced by the Christian convictions when they created our constitutional order. They clearly thought it was appropriate to include... Um, religion in, in public debates, for presidents to issue calls for prayer and fasting, and that sort of thing. At the state level, sometimes legislatures clearly appeal to religious convictions or biblical convictions when passing legislation. One of my favorite examples of this is Pennsylvania, when it passed an act to abolish slavery. And I'm paraphrasing here, but I quote the document in my um, in my book. Basically, the legislature says, recognizing that gifts, that liberty is a gift from God and that we cannot deny this gift to our fellow um, creatures created in God's image, we hereby abolish slavery. Um, it's a paraphrase, but again, you can read the document. 
And so, you know, according to people from the Freedom from Religion Foundation or the American Human Association, all of those things I just mentioned would be inappropriate. Uh, but the founders had no conception of that. They, they, they did not have this bright line dividing their religious convictions from their role as civic leaders or officials. Now, some would say, then you're describing a theocracy. What would be the right way to refer to uh, the government, uh, if not secular? Yeah, I would say, first of all, when people say that sort of thing, I ask them to define theocracy. Of course, most literally, it means rule by God, and that's Mm -hmm. not what we're talking about. It might also mean rule by priest, and that's clearly not what we're talking about either. Um, You know, so I think we're talking about uh, a Republican form of government, where the people go and they vote based on whatever criterion is important to them, and that certainly could include a person's faith or lack of faith, and Again, that's something we could debate. You know, I think I'd be comfortable electing a pro-life, fiscally conservative Sikh over a pro-choice, fiscally irresponsible Christian. But someone might say, no, 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 it's so important that elected officials be Christians. I'll vote for this Christian over the Sikh, even though she has all the wrong policies. But that's clearly appropriate. Article 6 of the Constitution prohibits religious tests for office, but that just simply says the United States of America and now the states can't say something like only Catholics can be in office or only Protestants. Um, So, you know, this is a citizen level. Now, once you get to be a legislator, you get to vote on whatever criteria you think is important. And so, for instance, if you believe that Jim Crow legislation is an affront to justice, to God's natural law, you could certainly, based on those convictions, vote against it. And thank goodness many of our congressmen did in the 1960s. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Has the United States Supreme Court been faithful to the vision of the founders and the framers of our Constitution? That's a long story. In 1947, (laughs) the Supreme Court articulated a view of history that said, in effect, the Establishment Clause requires a wall of separation between church and state. Of course, that sort of wall is nowhere in the Constitution. It's really a completely unworkable metaphor, right? If taken literally, that would mean churches want to have to obey zoning requirements and police want to um, protect churches, right? Nobody ever interpreted it that way. It's true that in the 1960s and the 1970s, the, the court tended to interpret the Establishment Clause as requiring something like a wall so that you couldn't have Bible reading or prayer in public schools, you couldn't have funds that would go to support various programs in private religious schools and that sort of thing. Um, so I would say that was very unfaithful to the intent of the founders or the original understanding of the Establishment Clause. Fortunately, since the, since the 80s anyway, the court has moved towards a more reasonable approach to interpreting the Establishment Clause. Um, this is evidenced very well, I think, in the recent cross case out of Maryland, a case that involved a 40-foot cross put up shortly after World War One to memorialize the dead from the, from the county. Now, as you might imagine, the Freedom from Religion folks and the American Humanist Association folks says this has got to go. We have got to destroy this cross or decapitate it or move it. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court looked at this and by a vote of 7 to 2 said the cross may stand. And I, I think that's a very appropriate decision, one that reflects the original understanding of the Establishment Clause. Let's talk about this notion of the separation of church and state, a a phrase that was used in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I think it's fair to say private correspondence. Was there a debate about the, in quotes, separation between church and state? And how is that relevant for interpreting the First Amendment? Yeah, certainly there are all sorts of issues that came up with respect to um, how church and state might be related. 
again, I think clearly, um, I think any Christian in his or her right mind supports a form of church-state separation. We don't want the government telling churches how they should run themselves in terms of ecclesiastical governance. And um, we also don't want, say, bishops to automatically have seats in the U.S. Senate, right? So there should be a form of separation. Um, The issues tend to come down with respect to things like, is it permissible for a president to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation, a proclamation that says everyone should go to his or her house of worship and give thanks to God if he or she wants to, right? So it's a very non-coercive sort of thing. And if we look at the debates in the era surrounding that, I, I, I tell a story in my book, um, it's involving the first federal Congress, the very Congress that drafted the First Amendment. I think it was two days after Congress drafted the First Amendment. No, it was one day after. Um, Elias Boudinot, later president of the American Bible Society, said, hey, we should ask George Washington to issue a call for um, a Thanksgiving Day proclamation. Now, there was there were a few people who objected. Adonis Burke and Thomas Tucker said, oh, no, we can't do that. That's a European practice. But Roger Sherman, the old Puritan from Connecticut, said, no, 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 it's okay. It's a biblical practice. It's something worthy of Christian imitation. Well, the House agreed with Boudinot and Sherman. The Senate agreed with the House. And President Washington, he didn't have to issue a call for a Thanksgiving Day proclamation if he didn't want to, but he did. And I would encourage all your listeners just to Google this, George Washington Thanksgiving Day Proclamation, Mm -hmm. 1789. It will come up right away. It is beautiful. It's robustly um, theological. And so I think that shows that the founders had no sense that it was inappropriate for presidents to issue such calls. And that's just one instance, and I discuss a number of other examples in the book. And we're just about out of time, but for those who believe the Constitution is a living, breathing document that can be interpreted or rather reinterpreted at, at will in view of contemporary norms, are you hopeful that in better understanding America's Christian founding that we will Uh, be faithful to that Christian founding, or at least return to it? I am hopeful about that. Now, the sort of most extreme progressive living constitution types, I think there's no hope for them. Uh, They just say the founders' views don't matter. I think for conservatives, we sort of naturally get, get that the founders' views matter. I think my book has the possibility of reaching into the middle. People who kind of like the rule of law, who don't think judges should make things up willy-nilly, who want to have an accurate account, of America's history. So I think if they would read this book, um, they would come away with a much greater understanding of Christianity's role in the founding, what the founders intended with respect to um, church-state relations, and especially, we haven't talked much about religious liberty, but the founders were profoundly committed to religious liberty for all Americans, not just for Christians, for Jews and Muslims and others. And I think that's an important um, tale that we have to tell today in this day and age where religious liberty is under such assault. Absolutely. Once again, the title of the book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. Uh, Dr. Mark David Hall, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my honor. Appreciate it very much. By the way, the book is published by Thomas Nelson, an excellent read, and uh, f- might make a great gift as well. News and traffic coming up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back eight minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we're going to talk with Wes Walterman and Paul Willie, both with the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, attended the first rehearsal to which I was invited on Monday 
Wow. The choir sounds great. The kids' choir, they sound great. So I asked Wes and Paul to come and just remind us that the tree starts not this, but next weekend. We'll give you all the important details. And we'll also talk with Major Robert Lloyd with the Salvation Army. The Red Kettle Campaign is about to begin. That's right after Thanksgiving. And you may not know that that is the event that raises the most funds for the Salvation Army all across the country. So we'll give you some uh, information on how you can join them in serving our community. Also, I want to remind you that there's going to be a celebration of the birth of Luis Palau. He's going to celebrate his 85th birthday on the 27th of this month. That's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And the downtown Bible class is doing something special. They meet at the Portland Art Museum um, at noon at uh, November 27th, the downtown Bible class. We would love to pack the place out and just bless Luis Palau. Uh, and uh, by the way, he's also going to be speaking, so we'll have an opportunity to hear from him. That's coming up on uh, November 27th, the downtown Bible class. And uh, we here at KPDQ are giving away some tickets, a family four-pack of tickets to see Portland Singing Christmas Tree on the KPDQ performance Friday, November 22nd, 7.30 p.m., again at the Keller Auditorium. Portland Singing Christmas Tree coming soon. You could win free tickets. You can enjoy a night full of great holiday music with the family, and you can enter to win once per day. So head over to kpdq.com or your mobile app for KPDQ for your chance To win, I hope to see you there, especially on the Friday, which is opening night, Friday the 22nd, opening night. It's also the KPDQ-sponsored evening, and we'd love to to have you join us. Well, Kentucky Republican Governor Matt Bevin conceded in his re-election bid against Democrat Andy Bashar Bashir on Thursday afternoon, over a week after the initial vote results were uh, too close to call. This is a developing story, but um, the Kentucky Republican governor, who is supported by um, the president has now conceded his reelection bid was unsuccessful. So that uh, has now come to an end. Meanwhile, it may seem strange that former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick is entering the presidential race, as he will reportedly announce and did today. It's um, late, some say. Well, the field is still uh, 16 major candidates deep. The Democratic voters really like the group of people already running, say some. But Patrick has a clear rationale for running, even if his odds of winning the nomination are pretty low. Democrats uh, have a somewhat unorthodox set of frontrunners, at least when compared to past nominees. Joe uh, Joe Biden, former vice president, is on the uh, old side at 76. I say that as a 63-year-old aspiring to be 76. Pete Buttigieg is on the young side at 37. Elizabeth Warren is very liberal. Bernie Sanders is uh, both very liberal and 78. And the last two Democrats to uh, win a general election, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, were 40-somethings who ran on somewhat safe ideological platforms. Patrick, meanwhile, is, well, my age. He's 63 years old, not young exactly, but uh, not on in the upper 70s either. He served two terms as Massachusetts. Massachusetts governor. He's liberal, but unlike unlikely to push more con- controversial liberal policies, much uh, such rather as Medicare for all or more drastic ones, such as a wealth tax. Uh, I assume that Patrick, who is friendly with uh, Barack Obama, is himself wary of the current Democratic field and its lack of a Bill Clinton or Barack Obama style figure. And that his circle includes a lot of Democratic Party operatives and donors who see this void and encouraged him to run or at least didn't discourage him. Uh, You might think that uh, Patrick's logical uh, path is 
to compete with Biden for black voters and with Warren and Sanders for New Hampshire voters. All three come from neighboring states. And sure, it would help Patrick if he uh, can peel off some of Warren's well-educated liberal voters, particularly in New Hampshire, and to win the nomination. He'll probably have to... um, Close the big lead that Biden has with African-Americans. But I think the real opening for Patrick is essentially to replace Pete Buttigieg as the candidate for voters who want a charismatic, optimistic left, but not that left candidate. Patrick is um, uh, betting that there's a uh, Goldilocks opportunity for him. I say about the African-American former governor Buttigieg, but older or Biden, but younger, a candidate who's viewed as both safe on policy and safe on electability grounds by Democratic establishment types and voters who just want a somewhat generic Democratic candidate that they're confident will win the general election. Well, whatever the equation might happen to be, the former governor of Massachusetts has now thrown his hat into the ring, entering the presidential race with a very uh, deep field of 16 major candidates on that side. Now, he won't be in the debates. I doubt that he'll have sufficient um, uh, coverage for him to be in the next Democrat debate, but he does make a rather interesting addition to it. Meanwhile, Mr. Bloomberg, who is also on the older side, is, uh, is contemplating throwing his hat in the ring as well. Well, a student newspaper that apologized to readers for re-traumatizing them through its coverage of a disputed campus appearance by former Attorney General Jeff Sessions also declined to publish a different type, a rather a different take on the incident in a letter from a college Republican chapter. Well, Dominic Bayer, vice president of the College Republicans chapter of Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, said that on Tuesday, the Daily Northwestern refused to publish a statement submitted November 6th by the club as a letter to the editor or op-ed about protesters' treatment of Jeff Sessions the night before. These protesters and others were apparently triggered by his appearance and his words were too much to bear. The College Republicans Club hosted the appearance by Sessions, which uh, protesters loudly disrupted both inside and outside the hall. The Daily Northwestern covered the protests surrounding Sessions' speech. Later, the outlet deleted some photo coverage of the session protests, along with the names of some interviewed protesters after individual students voiced their concerns. In an editorial on Sunday, the Daily Northwestern stated that its coverage harmed many students. Now, it wasn't an editorial. This was reporting on events that actually happened. But they went on to say, including by publishing photos that some protesters found re-traumatizing and invasive. Now, they were doing the protesting, but nonetheless, via email on the 6th of November, the college Republicans asked the newspaper to publish its statement on the protests against the former attorney general. But again, that was probably far too traumatizing. And so the newspaper decided not to publish that either as an op-ed or a letter to the editor. So students are apparently uh, safe from being traumatized by simply uh, considering an event that took place on campus at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Future leaders of America. Fifteen minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we're going to talk with Wes Walterman and Paul Willie of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. They'll join me in studio. And later we'll hear from Major Robert Lloyd with the Salvation Army. The Red Kettle Campaign is about to begin right after Thanksgiving. We'll talk about how important that is to the work of Salvation Army and how you can help. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back about 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I am pretty thrilled, maybe a little starstruck. It, with me in studio, Wes Walterman and Paul Willie with the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. We are just about to start the 57th season of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, bringing joy once again to... Um, uh, Folks from the Portland metro area for the 57th time, this two-hour production is uh, pretty incredible. And I've been mentioning, in fact, on Monday I mentioned that I'd been to the first um, rehearsal on, I guess I mentioned on Tuesday, on Monday night. And, oh, my goodness, the choir is just phenomenal. So, first of all, congratulations. And I wanted to uh, remind our listeners that the show begins this year a little earlier than they might anticipate. It does. It actually begins a week from tomorrow. A week before Thanksgiving, we usually begin the weekend of Thanksgiving, but because of where Thanksgiving fits this month and, and the ballet comes in right after this, the tree is over, we have to go a week earlier. But you know what? Patty at the box office says not one complaint, not one complaint. And we have a great weekend uh, of, of a house, you know, pretty full house this you know, next weekend as we come into the... 57th season of the Sing Christmas Tree. Well, this time around, we have uh, former Miss America who's joining us once again, Timothy Greenwich, um, Coral Walterman. We've just got a great lineup. The Children's Choir, the Jefferson Dancers, kind of give our listeners a preview of what they can anticipate this year. Yeah, great question. Um, I got to say, coming off of last year, one of the things that we heard uh, resounding was that was the best show they had ever seen in Singing Christmas Tree history. So we took that as a real challenge. How do we take that baseline and one-up it yet again? Uh, so when Wes and I and Timothy and the board, and we all began uh, working on uh, planning for this upcoming year, uh, we thought, let's, let's really push ourselves to reinvent this show yet again and bring some of the most amazing uh, performers, dancers, actors, aerialists that you've ever seen before, even better than, than, uh, than last year. Things that we are really excited about uh, in particular, um, last year's Aerialist was a huge hit. Mm-hmm. That most certainly is coming back, and we've got some exciting uh, additions that we're making around that. Uh, Jefferson Dancers are always a great hit, but we have some new numbers for them. The children's numbers also new. Um, the, our our uh, musicians in the pit with us, um, we had a chance to rehearse with them and the sound coming from them and just some of the new pieces we've been able to bring into the show this year. Uh, I, I just think it's going to be one of the most incredible, magical experiences for folks that get to attend. And tagging off what Paul said is um, the challenge for us this year is we, we found so many amazing songs out there, but they just don't have choir parts written in them. So what is our challenge? We want to do that song, but we need to add some uh, SATB parts into the to the music. So we really kept our, our two arrangers this year that arranged music for us very, very busy up to the last minute doing uh, you know charts for the band and also uh, getting our choir choir music all ready to go, which we presented to the choir back in the middle of August. That's when we kind of kicked this whole thing yeah. off. So we had to have everything ready to go for the choir by mid-August, which was a, a real big challenge this year. But we're super excited. They're, they're ready to go, as, as you heard last Monday night. Uh, they're super excited to step foot in the keller and, and to showcase uh, love, joy, peace, and hope to uh, Portland in this, in this realm of music for Christmas. And so they just can't wait. Yeah. You know, the real showstopper of the singing Christmas tree is the choir. And the degree of difficulty in the music has uh, increased over time. They've risen to that challenge. 
And I'm telling you, I was in the auditorium maybe for an hour, a little over an hour, and I was brought to tears about four or five times. <laughs> Just so well done. You find contemporary and traditional holiday music. The arrangements are beautiful. The performances are wonderful. Every once in a while, you sprinkle a little fairy dust and you have others who come. But this is a choir concert with a soloist sprinkled in here and there. And I'm telling you, it really is a fabulous program coming up. Yeah, they say this is one of the largest choirs in the Pacific North, Northwest at about 250 voices, and there's no doubt that that's probably true. Um, also, adding on what Paul was talking about this show, we're doing a blacklight number this year, and actually we're, we have a blacklight uh, lipstick for the kids. It's going to be a kids <laughs> number with Santa Claus is flying all around, uh, Santa Claus appear here, over there, and we're actually using the aerial artist uh, trapeze-type uh, Circus Olay equipment to do some extraordinary things with Santa Claus on stage, as well as the artist artistry that happens in our cinematic living nativity. But it, it's super fun. It, it, it'll the, the choir the, uh, the the curtains will go up, and the in the choir inside the tree will also be uh, have some different things that'll glow in the dark. And we have <laughs> it's it's going to be crazy. I, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I know you're probably having mm-hmm. a hard time trying to picture that. <laughs> what you need to do is just purchase a ticket. And go to the tree, and then you'll be able to see fully what he's explaining. And by the way, if you have questions, if you decide right now, I want to go to the singing Christmas tree, our wonderful ticket seller is right there right now, available to answer your questions, to sell you tickets, to let you know what's available, and so on. You can call the box office at 503-557-8733. That's 503-557-8733. Buy tickets for yourself, for your family. Invite a neighbor to come along. This is one of the finest performances of Christmas music you're going to find this holiday season. So do take advantage of it. Now, once again, the opening night is Friday, November 22nd, with a 7.30 p.m. performance. That's followed by two performances on Saturday, November 23rd, a 2 o'clock matinee and a 7 o'clock p.m. evening performance. On Sunday, there's a 2 o'clock matinee. And then, once again, on the following Friday, November 29th, you're going to have two opportunities, a matinee at 2 o'clock and an evening performance at 7 o'clock p.m. Again, that's Friday, November 29th, the day after Thanksgiving. Then again on Saturday, November 30th, a 2 o'clock p.m. matinee and a 7 o'clock p.m. evening performance. And then on Sunday, our closing performance, a matinee at 1 o'clock p.m. You can find all of that out online, but you can also call the box office and they're happy to walk you through what tickets are available, which seating and so on. And I think the survey that you did a year or two ago uh, has really set the price of tickets so that they're more affordable. We, The uh, board really listened to uh, people who have enjoyed the Singing Christmas Tree, and uh, they've, they've answered your, uh, your request. So I think you're going to find them affordable. And I, again, would encourage you not only to come uh, and enjoy it yourself, but bring someone who's never been along with you and uh, give them a bit of the peace, joy, hope, and love that is the uh, central theme of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Now, I have to ask you guys, you are the directors. You're responsible for directing everything. You have written and arranged music and all of this stuff. You've got the children's choir. You've got the dancers. There are so many moving parts. My head is spinning, and I'm not responsible for any of it. Do either of you get nervous before uh, the tree begins? I'll, I'll tell you, my hands get pretty sweaty as we uh, get ready to get started <laughs> down there. But um, for every bit of nervousness, I am so excited. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that Wes and I look so forward to is kicking off the uh, Christmas season for families across greater Portland and southwest Washington. That's for kids of, uh, you know, all the way down to two, three years old, all the way to the, um, the broadest of age ranges. I love that my youngest uh, child 
uh, five years old, says, Daddy, I cannot wait to see the singing Christmas tree this year. Oh, that's great. I, I would say the same thing. My, my hands get a little little sweaty, a little nerve-wracking, and as soon as the downbeat goes for that very first night, which will be a week from this Friday, uh, man, I tell you what, once that, once that curtain raises and we start into the program, uh, the sweat goes away, and now it's just working hard to get to yeah. that hallelujah chorus at the end, <laughs> making sure it's seamless and, and our audience is engrossed in the whole story and the music and the nostalgia that we bring on that stage. If you've never been to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, the music is spectacular, but the visuals are equally spectacular. They, they match one another. There are lots of moving parts, as I've mentioned. There are the Jefferson dancers, costume changes, just a lot going on uh, to showcase the fun of Christmas and also the central uh, fact of Christmas uh, in the second uh, half of the, pr- of the presentation. It really is amazing. In addition to folks who call the number 503 8733 and purchase their tickets. I know the Singing Christmas Tree has invited others to these performances who perhaps aren't in a position to afford a ticket, but they have the opportunity to attend as well. Absolutely. Just just reach out to Patty at the ticket office. Uh, but we do we do a performance where we really bring in a lot of those people and those organizations that yeah. just can't afford but but it's so important for them as well to be, you know, for the this Christmas season to kick off from them as well. And so uh that's, that's our huge give back to the community as well, is we really want to see every person, whether they can afford the show or not, to come and be a part of, of Christmas, the Christmas magic that happens at the Keller every year. The Singing Christmas Tree has hosted the Salvation Army, Rock Creek Food Pantry, Freedom House Ministries, My Father's House, and many, many others. So know that uh, in the performance that you're in, chances are there's some folks sprinkled in as well Mm -hmm. who couldn't afford tickets, who uh, may find this season very challenging and difficult, but they are being ministered to by the Singing Christmas Tree Choir. And uh, that's that's a gift, uh, once again, to the, the community in the Portland metro area. Well, the Singing Christmas Tree is proud to present the 57th season, bringing joy of Christmas to all ages. It's a two-hour musical production showcasing both contemporary and traditional holiday music performed by over 350 adult and youth choir voices, dance numbers from the Jefferson Dancers, special numbers by local actors and musicians, a cinematic living nativity. You've got to see that. Um, The original arrangements of Christmas songs, it is a spectacular presentation to which you are cordially invited. Once again, you can call the box office office at 503-557-8733. I hope to see you there. Opening night, Friday, November 22nd, 7.30 p.m. Wes, Paul, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks, Georgine. Thanks so much for your time. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, many of us are aware of the red kettles that suddenly appear around the holidays. Well, do you know the story behind those red kettles? I am so excited to have with me in studio Major Robert Lloyd. He is with the Salvation Army. We're going to talk about that campaign. He works here in the Portland metro area as a coordinator. He oversees programs across the Portland metro area. And the truth is, wherever there's a need in Oregon and southern Idaho, you'll find the Salvation Army at work. So, first of all, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a lot of fun to be here with you. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Salvation Army. I think a lot of people associate the organization with those red kettles, but maybe don't know much of the story behind those kettles. Well, that's right. You know, people see those red kettles, and they're very much aware of us from November through the end of the the year because they see and they hear those iconic kettle bells. But the reality is we're helping people 
seven days a week, 365 days a year. And this evening, while people are enjoying their dinner, we're feeding some people right at that very minute. We actually are providing three meals a day, seven days a week at our four shelter programs. And we have four other locations where we, where we have food pantries. So we feed a lot of people. We're coming alongside people 24-7. And that's what people don't think about the rest of the year. Yeah, I think we often wonder, okay, the red kettles are there. We're being encouraged to to contribute. But to what are we are we giving? This is a very significant campaign for Salvation Army all across the country. Well, this is our biggest fundraiser of the entire year. And the challenge that we're having this particular year is that there's actually a week fewer days between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So we're already basically a week of kettle income behind before we even start. And this money is really important because it helps us 365 days a year to make a difference in the in the lives of our neighbors. So we're encouraging people to come alongside us. We're encouraging people maybe to consider creating a new holiday tradition for their families and go to ringorgan.org. And sign up to ring bells as a family. If you play an instrument, if your kids play an instrument, you can ring bells and your kids can come and play their instruments. And what a great video for you to take for your family. Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of families are looking for ways to divert their children's attention away from the commercialism that so often characterizes the Christmas season in particular. And this is a great opportunity to give to the community in a way that's tangible. And as you say, posting that image on your Facebook page or Instagram, I think can encourage others to do the same. We've actually had people that will post a, a video of themselves ringing bells mm-hmm. and encouraging people to send donations so that they can add that to the pot. And we've had some families that like to compete. We actually have service clubs that like to compete against each other. But, you know, one of the things I want to mention, too, is that while parents are always trying to protect their children and raise their children to be good citizens, it's also another way that you can help your children understand that there are people that are struggling out there Mm. by coming alongside an organization like the Salvation Army. I know we're going to get together with our kids and our grandkids at Thanksgiving, and I anticipate a wonderful time. But I also want my grandkids to be aware that there are families that are in shelters that very day, that very moment, that are sitting around tables trying to trying to have a sense of normalcy, even though that they're in a shelter. So that's another reason, I think, to encourage families to consider a tradition of helping through the holidays. And it's a wonderful opportunity to encourage people to come alongside us and help do exactly that. You know, I think the holidays are a unique, teachable moment for many families in which we have the opportunity to really think about others in ways that perhaps we forget to during the rest of the year. So what a great opportunity. Now, for listeners who are interested in becoming Red Kettle Bell Ringers, what's the best way for them to say, yes, I'm going to be available, uh, me and my kids, me and my Bible study, my women's group, whomever? Well, the, the easiest way is for folks to go go to ringorgan.org and they can sign up as a family there. And again, some families like to dress up in costumes. Some families like to, in fact, I'm going to be wearing a dinosaur costume at one of the (laughs) ring events. I'm looking forward to being on Facebook in my dinosaur costume, ringing a bell. But we're encouraging families and church organizations and businesses to come alongside us, have fun, enjoy the holiday, and know that what you're doing is going to make a huge difference for people in our community throughout the entire year. It's a wonderful time of year to make a difference for people. Now, those bells start ringing at at Thanksgiving and finish, I think, uh, Christmas Eve? That's right. We're going to be starting. The start date kind of staggers depending on the particular store and the agreements that we have because that varies a little bit. 
But once Thanksgiving has come and gone, you'll see them at a lot of stores right up until Christmas Eve. And we encourage people to come alongside and be generous and ring a bell. Now, again, I want to emphasize that Salvation Army is doing great work all across the country. But right here in the Portland area, you serve nearly 80,000 people. These are our neighbors. Some of them are homeless. Some of them are women who have been victims of domestic violence. Some of them are families who are struggling just to have enough food on the table. You're addressing the needs of our community. And so many of us want to um, to be relevant and to minister to those around us. Salvation Army provides a unique opportunity to do just that. And ringing those bells gives you a chance to, to reach out to those people who, you know, who are our neighbors. Well, and I'm always mindful, too, that every clang of that bell represents a soul. Every clang of that bell represents a person with an amazing story. And even as you're talking, my mind goes over to our Veterans and Family Center and some of the families that are there. And I know I was speaking a few weeks ago to a gentleman who evidently had a conflict with staff because he has a traumatic brain injury. And the staff member was struggling to really understand how to communicate with this gentleman. And I also think about the families that are coming to our domestic violence shelters. Quite often in the middle of the night, we always have to make sure we have food there because families will show up at 2 a.m. And one of the best ways to help children and women heal is quite often to have a nourishing meal, even if it is in the middle of the night. So every clang of that bell, I think of a face and I think of a person. And I just encourage those that are out shopping to just stop for a moment and just think about the fact that the sound of that bell is representing a soul. Yeah, you know, I so appreciate when I am out and about shopping and I hear in the distance that bell ringing, my mind immediately focuses on something other than my shopping list, on myself, what I want, what I'm doing. I'm reminded there are people in our community who at that very moment and on Christmas morning and on the days after are in need. And I have an opportunity to do something to reach out and help meet their needs. And that's what the Salvation Army is presenting us with, is that opportunity to connect with our neighbors. Now, once again, we're looking for folks who are willing to ring the bell right here in the state. All you have to do is uh, go to ringoregon.org and the Salvation Army folks will do the rest. They can tell you when and where and what and all of that. And again, you're looking for individuals, for families. They can wear costumes. They can sing, bring your instruments, have a great time and help our community. um, Well, really help one another. That's right. And you know, a few years ago, we had a Star Trek club come out as well and they were all, all in costume. So, I mean, any groups that are out there that are in costume, they can come out in costume And, uh, you know, we will certainly uh, express our appreciation and give them due recognition. But, yeah, just let's just have fun together as a community doing something that will make our community better. Mm. And again, I want to emphasize once again, this Red Kettle campaign is a major fundraising event for the Salvation Army. So what happens in this now um, shortened length of time will determine uh, the ministry that you're able to do in the months ahead. That's right. You know, every January we have to kind of sit back and Mm -hmm. look to see how our Christmas went. And then we have to sometimes make challenging decisions about how that's going to impact our service. I mean, no matter what happens, we're going to be here because we're committed and we we feel that we have a spiritual commitment and obligation to God to help make a difference in the lives of people. And it's really important to us to do that in a way that affirms everybody regardless of their political affiliations or whatever personal issues may be going on in their lives. We don't discriminate against anybody. We don't require anybody to sit through a church service. We just want to come alongside and care and affirm for those people that are quite often forgotten or don't already feel affirmed and cherished and valued. We want to be part of 
making life better for people and making our community a better place for everyone to live. Mm. Well, if you'd like to be a part of that, let me encourage you to go to ringoregon.org for more information and become one of those uh, heroes of the season who stand on a corner or in the lobby of a store or wherever the location might happen to be. Ring that bell and remind your neighbors that there are those among us who have needs that we together can help meet. The Salvation Army, they're going to be there extending the love of Christ, extending their hands and ministering to folks. All we need to do is to underwrite the, their efforts and provide the resources necessary to be a blessing. Let me just say, um, Major Bob, how much I appreciate your commitment to our community, your willingness to serve. Most of us are going to be with family and friends on Christmas morning, but I tell you, I'm going to think about Salvation Army is ministering to others who don't have the same resource that I do on Christmas morning and on Thanksgiving and all the days that follow. And I just am grateful that Salvation Army for many, 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 many years has continued to extend the love of Christ into this and many other communities. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I'm just looking forward to the most wonderful time of the year when we can make our community a wonderful place. Absolutely. Once again, ringoregon.org. I challenge you. (laughs) Go to the website, sign up, and I'll look for you out on the streets of Portland. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. It happens to be our final segment of the afternoon. You know, we just had an opportunity to talk with Major Bob from the Salvation Army. They do great work. He is the um, uh, commissioner of the Cascade Divisional Headquarters, and so he does work right here in our community. He's also served in other parts of the country, but for now he is here and ministering to our neighbors. But I noted the Daily Signals column, the headline of which read, Pop Stars with uh, Salvation Army demands donation to LGBT group. And it was uh, something of a controversy that has, a, I think, a satisfactory uh, ending. But uh, it was two weeks until Thanksgiving, but the NFL's halftime singer is already calling time out. Ellie Goulding, the musician who was scheduled to perform at the Thanksgiving game, threatened to pull out uh, if the Cowboys spotlighted the Salvation Army, which they intend to do during their game on Thanksgiving. And what a tremendous opportunity to be spotlighted during halftime show uh, for a um, NFL team. Well, she said if, unless they folded on their Christian beliefs, she was going to pull out of the event. Now, either uh, give the donation uh, she demanded of the nonprofit or I'm out. In that case, some say don't let the arena door hit you on the way out. But for Goulding, who just posted a glowing endorsement of the Salvation Army on Instagram, the threat was a complete surprise. A smiling Goulding, she wore a red apron at a homeless shelter, had nothing but good things to say about the organization two days earlier, insisting that the Salvation Army helps Americans overcome poverty, addiction, economic hardships through a range of social services, all of which is absolutely true. All it took was one follower replying with a ridiculous lie that the Salvation Army let queer homeless people die. That's the direct quote. And Goulding snapped to attention, willing to throw millions of needy people under the bus to prove her loyalty. Well, upon research this, she wrote, I have reached out to the Salvation Army and said that I would have no choice but to pull out unless they very quickly make a solid commitment, pledge or donation to the LGBTQ community. Now, this is based on one response to an Instagram post. Supporting an anti-LGBTQ charity is clearly not something I would ever intentionally do. Thank you for drawing my attention to this. Well, clearly she didn't know what she was talking about. No one's quite sure what research she actually did, since even members of the gay community have insisted that the charity helps all people, 
which they do. In fact, Madeline Fry points out in the Washington Examiner, one LGBT group, the Prairie Pride Coalition, decided to test the theory. They encouraged people to rate the Salvation Army's tolerance at local shelters. The response was so positive, the organization endorsed the Salvation Army. Given this information and the sincere, earnest efforts by the staff and leadership at our local Salvation Army, we feel comfortable recommending that members of our community support our local Salvation Army. Too bad no one drew Goulding's attention to that. Well, meanwhile, David Hudson, the national commander of the Salvation Army, is used to this kind of harassment and misinformation, saying with an organization of our size and history, myths can perpetuate an individual's sexual or gender identity, religion or lifestyle has no bearing on our willingness to provide service. We stand firmly behind our mission to meet human needs in his name without discrimination. I don't know about you, but I've never heard of a hate group feeding, housing and treating 23 million people a year. That's what the Salvation Army does, feed, house, and treat 23 million people a year. What I have heard are plenty of um, critics willing to let families starve in the name of fairness that, uh, that they themselves don't practice. If you can't handle the Salvation Army, Tim Carney tweeted, then you're the totalitarians. He's right. It sounds like the Dallas Cowboys could use some change on the schedule and in the kettle. So if you hear rumors about that and you scratch your head and wonder about the Salvation Army, now you know. By the way, there was a recent survey of Portland Public School students showing that the majority of teens enrolled in the state's largest school district have a grim view of their sense of belonging. Now, when I was attending school, I didn't necessarily have a need to have a sense of belonging, but this is the 21st century, and I guess that's considered a modern-day virtue. Now, being an outsider, you don't want to perpetuate that, but you go to school to get an education in order that you can uh, meet your aspirations and fund your future needs. Middle and high school students across the state's largest districts say they feel little to no connection to the adults who educate them. Now, how connected were you to the vast majority of adults who educated you, and how important was that? They're not excited about class what teenager is, and most say they regularly see disrespectful behavior in their building. Now, it's not defined here what that means, but those are the results of a survey Portland Public Schools conducted during the 2018-2019 academic year, collecting 5,770 responses from students in middle and high school and 3,600 responses from elementary schoolers. Now, that's a relatively small number, and we don't know what the questions were or how they were asked, but district officials distributed the survey to students in 5th, 7th, and 10th grades. About 16% of middle and high school students said uh, they don't feel at all connected to the adults in their building, while another 32% said they only felt slightly connected to faculty and staff. Now, connected to, what does that mean exactly? Still about 85% of students overall said most, if not all, of their teachers treated them with respect. They don't feel connected, but they're being treated with respect. Students in 7th and 10th grade also overwhelmingly say they feel like they don't matter to other people in their school, presumably their peers. Only 33% of students surveyed said they either matter quite a bit or a tremendous amount to their fellow students. Now, another 9% or 527 students said they felt like they don't matter at all, while 21% uh, said that they matter a little bit. That's about 1,200 students. Uh, Those who identify as gender fluid and non-binary that may confuse their fellow students and faculty again registered some of the most grim responses with only 18 percent saying they felt that they either mattered quite a bit or tremendous amount 
in their school. Students in middle and high school also overwhelmingly said they don't, they're not excited in class or eager to participate. About 15% said they were excited about their courses, and one in five said they were eager to participate in class activities. Now, to what degree is that the responsibility of the teacher, who has a very limited amount of time to convey a great deal of information under very difficult circumstances quite often? And to what degree is this the responsibility of parents? About 14 of uh, percent of 7th and 10th graders say they almost always saw their peers act disrespectfully toward each other, while 32% said they frequently saw such behavior. 31% said they saw it sometimes. Well, it goes on from there. Safety was one of the categories where students, faculty, and parents all registered favorable responses. Only around 11% of 7th and 10th graders say they worried about violence at their school, while 14% of parents registered similar concerns. After events that took place earlier today in a California high school, It is bracing, alarming, and sobering for all of us in that particular category. Just thought I'd uh, let you know what at least students in the Portland Public School District are saying. Well, today being Thursday, that makes tomorrow Friday, and that means we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. I hope you'll join us right here on the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.